Ashley, and this is Let's Talk Dispatch. I knew that. <laughs> You're going to do it. Do it really well. And I believe the world needs more dispatchers. years that I'm not working Fourth of July. Fourth of July. Community policing, right? What about community dispatching? So on this show, with the help of my guests, we will educate, empower, and support the heroes behind the headset. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode here on Let's Talk Dispatch with me, Ashley, the Raspy Dispatcher. As you can see, my room is, my office is evolving. (laughs) We've moved all the merchandise stuff into here as well. So this office is now fully committed to the Raspy Dispatcher. So uh, shout out to my fiance, Claudia, for packing all the orders, making all the stickers here in-house. You are really appreciated. It really takes a load off my plate. So thank you so much. Uh, We did just release our first challenge coin, uh, the Raspy Dispatcher, because the world needs more dispatchers. If you haven't had a chance to grab one, head to the raspydispatcher.com. Once they are gone, they are gone. We're not going to be making um, more of the same coin. So definitely grab it while you can. And of course, check out all the other merch we got in there. We got some new hats, a new bag, um, some drinkware. So definitely a lot of stuff to gear up heading into the holidays for your favorite dispatcher. Again, theraspydispatcher.com. Go ahead and check that out. So my guest today was a New York Fire Department alarm dispatcher from 1973 to 1982, working out of Brooklyn, which they were proud to claim as the busiest fire alarm station in the world. They have since took to writing as an author, writing novels and short stories about the FDNY dispatchers in 1970. My guest today, everybody, Francis Holtz. Hi, Francis. Hi, Ashley. How you doing? I am doing well. Yourself? Very good. Thanks. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for reaching out and being willing to come on. Um, I know you emailed me, letting me know about your short stories that you're putting out about uh, dispatchers in the 1970s. And tell us a little bit about how you got into public safety. Well, if you're the raspy dispatcher, I'm the accidental dispatcher. (laughs) Because I had no, I didn't know such a thing existed as a fire alarm dispatcher. I really didn't. And um, I had a, I had a part-time job uh, as a weekend telephone operator in a big hospital in, in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And some of the folks that I, were wor- I was working with were uh, off-duty uh, police officers and firefighters. And one thing led to another. And one of the firefighters said to me, you know, if you'd like, I, I can put a word in for you. They're looking to, uh, to fill some what they, what they called provisional slots. That means they didn't have a, a, enough openings to, to mount a civil service test but they could hire some people until they did. Hmm. And so I said, what's the pay? And it was a lot more than I was making. <laughs> and, so, and suddenly I was interested. So <laughs> I, I really had no idea. I mean, I, my grandfather was a New York City cop, but um, that's as far as my public safety interest had gone. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I got there. Coming in as a provisional, you don't come in with a class, so there's not wasn't a lot of training. Mm-hmm. A lot of there was no certification, mm-hmm. and and so you had to uh, 
keep your eyes and ears open and your mouth shut and learn what was going on. So. <laughs> what was that like in the beginning for you? I would imagine it was probably really stressful with the limited training and the and not being able to open your mouth as a dispatcher. No, just kidding. <laughs> well, no. It, it, first of all, I'm a guy who likes to open his mouth. Uh, <laughs> Second of all, um, I got thrown into a, a schedule of two days, two evenings, and two nights with 96 hours off and do it again, um, which I, I – boy, that was kind of interesting. And so um, I actually didn't take a phone call, I don't think, for about six weeks. Uh, and it was kind of a stunning, overwhelming wave of noise and information. You sat in this big room with a huge – high ceiling and fire alarm circuits coming in on both sides of the room. And they were um, uh, telegraph circuits. So they'd be tapping in on both sides. The phones would be ringing constantly. Mm. Radio would be going. There was a voice alarm system that connected to all the firehouses and everybody there knew what they were doing except me. (laughs) And and there was all this back and forth. It was like a foreign language, all these numbers Mm. and, um, you know, engines and trucks, and and uh, I, I had it. I it took me a while because it's a different world. <laughs> it's it's a completely different world, and you have to be both fast and accurate, and and you feel that pressure from the from the first day you walk in. Mm. You know, they're, they're not gonna. Uh, after, so you sit and watch for a little while, then they move you to paperwork, which familiarizes you with the codes and all that stuff. You do paperwork for a few weeks. And then maybe at four o'clock in the morning or something, you, you, you might be able to take a phone call and see what's going on. <laughs> but somebody paying it very much attention to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So it, it just um, kind of took over my life for a while because uh, if you were gonna, if you were going to be successful, you really had to pay attention. No. Uh, so yeah, it was it was kind of stunning. I'd say I was stunned for a long period. <laughs> the stunned yeah. dispatcher. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, when you were you know getting in there, you you guys didn't have like a CAD system like we have today. I imagine, right? <laughs> so <laughs> what's that? <laughs> it had to be up here. I worked with guys who just scared the crap out of me because they knew so much. Well, I didn't think I was ever going to learn as much as they did. They, uh, they'd hear a box come in. They knew where it was before somebody pulled the assignment card. They knew who went. They knew if, if the companies who went were available on the air and they'd start calling them on the radio immediately. They'd know what the occupancies were at the corner. Mm. And, you know, I'm talking about a city of 4 million people. Brooklyn. Yeah. Just Brooklyn. These guys were amazing. They were very, very good at what they did. Um, mm-hmm. and, and if I got to be half as good as they were, I'd be a good dispatcher. So, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I have very limited knowledge about fire dispatching today, for even compared to back then. Um, I guess my question is, when our fire alarms do go off, um, we get some type of notification. We're... And I think for us, like burglary alarms, it comes from the company that holds whatever for the folks who have that alarm going off. Is that kind of how the setup was back then as well with fire alarms? The fire alarm would go off and then like a third party would call it into you guys? Or what did that look like for you back then? So we, we, we had a, a number of ways of things coming in. So uh, if somebody pulled a handle on the street box, 
that activated a wheel which started tapping out a numerical location mm. and and it was it was you know a direct current line from every other corner in brooklyn into the central office uh, near prospect park all, all of the central offices were located in big city parks mm. um for a lot of reasons safe safety is a big one defensible perimeters no exposures that are going to interfere with your operation so that they would all they would come in directly from a, a pulled box uh people dialing 911 would go to police communications and they would press an add on button and that would ring where we were mm. people could call the operator to report a fire mm. and that would come in on a second set of, of phone banks wow. and um uh, there were people oh there were class 3 alarms so acme fire alarm wells fargo any of those building services the alarm would go from the building to them and they would call us on another set of phones so um there were, and then the only other way you could get it is if somebody walked into a firehouse or stopped a rig on the street and said hey there's a fire down the street here <laughs> and, and uh, that would happen you know often yeah. Not, every, not every day, but fairly often. So yeah. that was a verbal alarm. So you had a phone alarm, a box <laughs> alarm, a verbal alarm, and a class three alarm. Awesome. Uh, and, and that's how they came in. And all 911 alarms were phone alarms. So. Very interesting. Well, do you remember any of your like first call for service, early calls in your career? You know, I thought about that question, and I'm I'm, I'm lucky I can remember anything <laughs> from 1973 to 1974. <laughs> That's really <laughs> um, no, it, no, I don't remember any particular alarm. I do remember because that was part of what they called the war years mm-hmm. uh, in, in uh, FDNY, and what I do remember was that um, it was so amazingly busy there was so much stuff going on and and these guys that said nobody's excited everybody was extremely calm and uh you you learned that that was one way or another you learned that that was the only way you could function hmm. um so it was it was um it, it was stunning but no I, I didn't remember any particular thing i the only, you know, I looked at that question. The only thing I remember is once when I was on the radio. So I was the radio dispatcher for Brooklyn, and there's all kinds of units in the street trying to get your attention. Mm-hmm. And, and there was a um, a third alarm in a church, mm-hmm. and and you know the the ticket came over from the alarm receiving side to the radio. I picked it up and I looked at it. And it said, if I had reported to be in the church and somebody wrote, holy smoke on the ticket, you know, <laughs> dispatch a humor. <laughs> and at that time, it had gone to a third alarm, and you know, but it was really the only big fire we had working. And so, and the chief that was in charge came on and said, transmit a fifth alarm for this box. Oh, wow. I'd never gone from three to five. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't want to say, are you sure you mean five? Because yeah. he, he was the chief. Yeah. Uh, but I, I said, yes, we'll transmit a fourth, then a fifth. And he said, you know, 10 four. And, and that was the only time I'd ever seen anything like that. And, oh, wow. uh, you know, I wasn't, that's the only one I remember. There was a lot. There was yeah. a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. 
Yeah, I, it's the holy smokes for me. <laughs> I imagine that would be something I try to work into my cat call. Like, oh man! Like, I mean, I get, like... <laughs> in, in one of our slower boroughs, I won't say which one. I'll give you a hint. It's an island. And uh, <laughs> and one of the slower boroughs, there was a, a fire reported in an Arthur Trich's fish and chips. And in the background, they sang the song from the commercial when they announced. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, small victories in this match, I tell you. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, what do you think is different and yet the same about dispatching now versus when you were dispatching? Well, you know, one of, one of the, the um, posts I did in LinkedIn a couple of months ago was, was talking about what was the same. <clears throat> and I think the one thing that's the same and it probably always will be the same is the intensity of this one-on-one connection with a complete stranger who's um, perhaps reporting a fire someplace else or perhaps is in the fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's, uh, you know, a lot, a lot hanging in the balance on, on that conversation. And sometimes you know, you can't hear them because of the noise of their environment uh, or they have a um, an accent that you're not familiar with. Although I will say growing up in, in Brooklyn, I, I knew a lot of accents and I knew how to swear in five or six languages. So, <laughs> it, you know, it, it, accents generally weren't a problem. But sometimes, you know, you, you had all of these challenges coming in at the same time. And the, and the conversation might last. 20 seconds because they couldn't stay on the phone with you. Maybe, maybe 20 seconds. Uh, sometimes you're on the phone with somebody until somebody got there to help them. Mm-hmm. But you know, the intensity of that one-to-one connection, I, I think people are better, better trained now. So that's one of the things I'd say was different. I, 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 when I got finished with the fire department, I, I worked for a, a training company oh, yeah. and traveled around the country for, I don't know, a year and a half, two years, training dispatches. And so uh, the people are now better able to uh, focus their communication, elicit the kind of critical information you need to give to the responding units and to assess what you need to send. But um, at that time, you know, we used to just answer the phone, what's the address of the fire? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, I don't, looking back on it, I don't think that was the most efficient way to answer the phone because a lot of people weren't prepared for that question. Yeah. So, um, but the, the training is one of the big, big uh, differences in technology. You know, um, I did a, I did a, a LinkedIn piece, um, I don't know, maybe a month ago. It says, imagine you're a dispatcher in 1973. And uh, it, got, it got a lot of hits. And I heard from different people in different uh, channels about it. And, uh, you know, the, the things that are so different now – for, for example, <clears throat> typically you know where your caller is. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know where they are, you know their phone number, typically. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. We had no automatic number identification, automatic location identification. We didn't have any of that. I, I've said so many times, like, I don't know if I could have done this job back in the day. <laughs> and I'm sure that's just because I've grown up with the tech and all that nonsense. But, like, this job was, like, extra, in my mind, hard because you did have to rely 
on that that brain of yours and your ability to navigate with map books and you know um handwritten notes and and my handwriting is atrocious so i wouldn't get the job just based on that they would like go be a doctor you can't read this um so <laughs> i've said many a times that technology for me um makes the job quote unquote easier and it's hard for me to imagine doing this job without all those nuances that technology provides me well i'll tell you when uh, while i was there they started to uh, prepare for computer assisted dispatch and it, the first uh, generation of it came in uh, while i was still working there but what was interesting was the preparation period because all the people who were going to bid on the system mm. would come in and visit the, and try and quantify what it was we were doing and I, I can remember sitting again, sitting on the radio, and it's a little engineer guy sitting off to my left. I, I remember this guy; he was a very nice man. And a box came in, and I was counting it in my head as it was coming in. And I, I got on, keyed the radio, and I asked for a ladder company to respond to the box. And he had a he had a stopwatch, and he was trying to, you know, time all the components of this process. Mm. And he said, how did you? And I said, later, later. <laughs> and a couple of the companies that came in to try and um, bid on that decided it wasn't something that they could they could do. Um, the system that they got was pretty good. I do remember dispatches worrying. Cause typically, we would have seven or eight dispatches on duty. And they would worry about, well, the computer is going to take over, take over my job. Um, and and not, actually, it was quite the opposite. We needed more people. Mm. Just a computer does one thing at a time, does it really well. The, the big thing that came out of um, uh, computer-aided dispatch, as far as we were concerned, was that it produced more management reports. Mm. And it really quantified. I mean, we knew we were busy. But there was a little thing down on the bottom of your screen in the right-hand corner mm. that showed how many alarms an hour you were doing. Oh, wow. And it, it's like, holy crap, we're really busy. <laughs> <laughs> the, the glass ceiling has been broken, and you're just like, oh, no. <laughs> now now they know. <laughs> now they know. Yeah, yeah. Well, and people started to feel worse then. Yeah. You know, oh, I, you know, I should be making more money. And my sister, and they were, they were right. They should be making more money. Before we continue, we wanted to take a moment to thank our partners at Prepared. You can learn more about the awesome support and technology Prepared provides to first responders by heading to prepared911.com. Partners like Prepared help to continue our mission of supporting, empowering, and educating the heroes under the headset. You can learn more about our resources and partnerships by heading to theraspydispatcher.com. Now let's get back to the show. Well, it's funny that you uh, bring up the fact that, like, that, you know, you're, you were there when they first implemented this CAD system and the idea of, like, someone coming from the outside, the, the tech world, and trying to create a program that really allows dispatchers to do this all-encompassing work. 
the idea that like, yeah, like someone had to go in there and figure out how does this translate into technology? Because I mean, now there's, you know, 30, 40 CAD companies, probably more than that, but there's so many different types of CAD companies, so many different ways that they've created technology to try to streamline our processes. And, and it's just really astonishing to think that someone at some point had to have someone sit with the dispatcher and really figure out what the heck it is that they're doing and how do we translate this language into code <laughs> and then have that code be something functional that the dispatcher isn't going to lose their mind using, you know, on the job. Yeah, and, and I think they were working with, in terms of computer capacity, mm -hmm. I think they were working with the equivalent of the Wright Brothers airplane. You know, I mean, it was really early days and, and I had a lot of respect for these guys because they did come up with a, a system that, you know, worked most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> And um, that was not an easy thing to do. Now, they got better as computer comp computing capacity grew. But, um, boy, at the beginning, it was really – and I did get a chance to explain to the guy afterwards. I said, look, don't interrupt me in the middle of an alarm. <laughs> we'll slow things down and we can't have that. But this is what happened. I knew this guy was still up, up meaning available by radio. Uh, because he came back from this false alarm over here and he didn't have time to get back to his house over here. And this other box came in and I know he was first due on that box. And so I just called him and got him rolling in that direction. Mm -hmm. And he said, you did all of that like that? And I said, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and there were guys that were a lot better than me yeah. doing that because there were, there were so many companies mm -hmm. uh, in so many neighborhoods um, and they, they knew them. They, they knew them and they knew where they went and then they knew who, not only did they know who went to what box, they knew who was first due and second due and third due. <laughs> Fascinating uh, people and um, did the job really well. Awesome. Well, you have been writing and putting out stories about the wonderful dispatchers back then. So let's talk about your new book, Brooklyn Fire. Um, and that is coming out on November 1st. Oh, look at that. Yeah. Let's talk about that and what that's about, your inspiration and all that. Good stuff. This is, a, this is a, uh, a proof copy, and you see, I don't know if you can see it, there's a burning church on the cover. Oh, okay. And, and so Holy smokes. Yes. Right. <laughs> you learn fast. You, you, yes. you could have worked in Brooklyn 50 years ago. Sure, you could. <laughs> Brooklyn Hellfire is the name of it. It's the third in. Uh, in a series called uh, Guardians of Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, um, I, I really have fun writing them. So it's, it's kind of, uh, I hope people have as much fun reading them as I have writing them. Uh, I knew you were going to ask me, what about the book? So I'm just going to read you from the promo. Awesome. <laughs> I like what's, it. What's up in Brooklyn Hellfire? Let's just say it has fires, rescues, explosions, and a shootout mixed in with scandal in the Catholic Church, bookmaking, loan sharks, city politics, unsettled scores, union politics, and, of course, families, all kinds of families. And so, yeah, that's what's in the I book. I feel like I've never heard a more New York description of, of a book. <laughs> that sounds awesome. <laughs> and, you know, and I, I can actually talk like New York, too. 
<laughs> it is one of my favorites. I'm not going to lie. I just yeah. did a post class yeah. and we had a guy from New York who worked for PD uh, back then and he had the, the accent. And I was like, this is wonderful. I could sit here all day. <laughs> <laughs> um, so where can folks pick up the book when, when it is? Uh, well, it's it's going to be available. Actually, the, uh, my books are all through Amazon. Um, I had written a, a textbook a hundred years ago. It's probably in the Smithsonian by now. <laughs> because it was pre-computer-assisted dispatch. Mm. That that was through Penwell Publishing, and I don't know where you can get one of them. You'd have to get it secondhand. But the the uh, the novels and the short stories are all through Amazon. The um, Brooklyn Hellfire uh, Kindle book, the ebook, is available for pre-order now at Amazon, and it and it. Uh, uh, is really, I, you know, I can't bring myself to say it drops on November 1st. I just, <laughs> anytime somebody says something drops, I'm looking to pick it up. Uh, it's just, <laughs> and then when I go down to get it, I might not come back up. You know, it's, it's a risk. It's a risk either way. And it's, it'll be available in both uh, the ebook, which is the Kindle. And if, if you don't have a Kindle, you can still have a Kindle reader uh, on your laptop or. Um, True. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever device you're using, and uh, it'll be available in in, in the ebook and in uh, paperback. And I've started writing the, uh, the next installment already. Awesome! Very very cool. You know, it's definitely we're getting to a place where dispatchers, excuse me, are being more represented in yes. you know media as in TV. We're being mentioned on shows. There's a uh, dispatch, uh, <clears throat> like a live PD dispatch version, you know, we're definitely starting to be recognized more, um, for the masses to, to be able to see. So hearing that we have, you know, folks writing books, like stories about, uh, you know, what the dispatchers like in this era with these things happening around is, is really fun. And, and is really, a it's really awesome. I, I did write a guide for um, writing your memoirs, your, your fire service EMS memoirs. Mm. One of the things I put in the guide was I did some market research. And uh, there's a few memoirs, um, you know, for, for firefighters, maybe three or 400 memoirs. And there's over a million firefighters in the country. Mm. And then, there's, you know, there's a few for uh, police. Um, and of course, there's novels for police all over the place. There's a few for fire. Then I tried to get to dispatcher memoirs, and there's, I think the number was 68,000 dispatchers in the country, and there were four memoirs. Wow. <laughs> and I said, you know, there's a good market for you if you want to do something. <laughs> and then I looked for dispatcher fiction, and, and um, I couldn't find any that was, you know, just purely dispatcher fiction. Yeah, and so that's the only thing I really. They say write what you know. I I know that. Yeah, <laughs> and so um, you know, I started doing it during the pandemic, and um, I decided to keep doing it. It's a lot of fun. Very cool. You know, and I mean, it needs to be done because that's that's where we kind of first find things and people that we want to aspire to be right in the in the movies and shows that we yes. watch in the books we read especially when we're younger you know i think the more um exposure uh we give folks to the work we're doing and the work that we have done um the more 
of an understanding they're going to have if they ever have to call for help, um, as well as when we're 18 years old trying to figure out what we want to do with our lives, you know, uh, and that changes every two minutes. Um, maybe dispatch will be a thought, you know, and that's, that's really what we're hoping for. Yeah. I, I, um, I did a, a, a post was this week about uh, dispatcher added safety. And a lot of that is something that hasn't changed also, that, but nobody knew about it. Mm. Nobody knew how much, safety dispatches added to um, responding field forces. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, pre-arrival instructions weren't really part of the part of the situation until about 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but dispatcher added safety is a big deal. And, and in the post, I said that um, maybe it was in response to Halcyon's post. But anyway, I said something to the effect of, you know, that there was a uh, um, an article, I think it might have been an APCO journal, but it might have been something else. The name of it was The Hidden Professionals, and it was about dispatches. And you're right, dispatches are hidden no more. Now, part of the reason they're hidden no more is the, the kind of media view uh, that comes on from television shows, also from this podcast. Mm. I saw you had 14,000 viewers. Hey, yeah, getting, getting up there. <laughs> That's very good. Mm -hmm. uh, and part of it, uh, for better or worse, um, came from litigation, mm -hmm. where people watched Rescue 911 or whatever it was that featured dispatching, mm -hmm. and, and they lived in a jurisdiction that didn't have pre-arrival instructions. Mm -hmm. They called up, somebody was having a cardiac or whatever, and they didn't get any pre-arrival instructions. They had to wait until the ambulance got there. Mm -hmm. and, and when there was a bad outcome, they uh, sued. And the whole standard would be, <clears throat> what is uh, what do twelve reasonable people reasonable people think would be the standard of care? And if those twelve reasonable people were watching television, mm -hmm. the standard of care was well, you should tell them what to do until somebody gets there. Yeah. So, so you know, there were some unfortunate events that uh, resulted in some litigation mm -hmm. that also resulted in some changes. You know, there's a lot of uh, positive changes that come out of really unfortunate things like uh, the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire or the Coconut Grove Fire, mm -hmm. which you know, changed building codes and changed the need for exit doors. And so it was the same thing with dispatches. Uh, nobody knew who they were until um, they absolutely needed them to perform at a higher level. And, mm -hmm. and they do now. Just about everywhere in the country, I, I haven't found a place where they don't anymore. Mm -hmm. And that, that is a um, comparative asset that most com communities are just beginning to value, just mm -hmm. beginning to understand. Mm -hmm. Because like you said, you call and you're in trouble. <laughs> you're not going to call Ghostbusters. Who are you going to call? <laughs> oh, no, they might in New York, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it is so true. It's like we – provide this certain level of care that people don't really have an understanding until they're really impacted by it. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. like, you don't realize how essential the folks who are on the phone with you until the, the units who are going to the call arrive until yeah. you're there having to, you know, provide CPR, never given CPR or, you know, trying to help your, your kid choking or whatever the thing is. 
Um, you don't realize, I think, as a regular everyday individual, the need for those folks until you need them. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot like uh, smoke detectors, you know. Um, I don't know. Smoke detector. What do I need that for? You know, <laughs> my house has never burned down. <laughs> right. and, and it's the whole idea of why, um, why public safety services exist. You know, it's a, for the individual, no matter how many alarms we were doing per night, you know, each one of them was something for an individual. And for the individual, typically, it's a low-frequency, high-consequence event. Mm. And so this is a big damn deal for them. And for you, it's like, oh, another phone call. Oh, <laughs> and, and so part of the, the, the uh, challenge for supervisors was to keep everybody kind of up and saying, hey, you're doing a great job saving lives, you know. Yeah. Um, but it, it is something that people uh, don't – don't realize that sometimes even cities, towns, municipalities don't want to invest in the systems for this because they say, well, how often does that happen? Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, what's the pilots uh, saying? One mid-air collision can ruin your whole day. You know, how, how often does it happen? Yeah. Well, it only has to happen once and you don't forget it. Yeah. So. And I would say that, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm out here in California and I feel like fires in general have become more commonplace and more um, of a topic of concern. And would you say comparatively, like back in, back when you were working with fires, um, was there, is there more of an awareness for the impact of fires and um, the frequency of fires now versus when you were dealing with fires, uh, you know, as your regular everyday job? Yeah, I, I think that it's kind of hard to uh, to deny if, you, if you're if you sitting in New York and you wake up and the sky is yellow and brown and you say, mm -hmm. what's that? You know, <laughs> well, smoke from California, from Canada, from, from wherever, that there's a, an environmental impact that's impossible to to, uh, to deny um the other thing i'll say about california i uh, did some uh training out there in um in coronado and um they they were so far ahead of east coast uh operations in terms of incident command mm. so it's kind of interesting to me to see uh, how things developed in different parts of the country. And, and one of the reasons they were very much ahead, way ahead in incident command, was because of uh, wildfires and the number of units spread out over a large area. Mm -hmm. um, and now incident command is being used in, you know, a, a, a building fire on the corner. And, and for good reason. And it keeps track of everybody. It's really important. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's not something – um, a rational person could deny if they can observe their environment. Mm -hmm. it's, it's there and um, and out west, I, I lived out west for a while. I lived in western Colorado, mm -hmm. almost in Utah. And out west, the um, declining availability of water is scary as hell. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it, it's really concerning. Mm -hmm. And people haven't gotten to the point yet where they're, where they're uh, 
doing legislative mandates for xeriscaping instead of green lawns and that sort mm -hmm. of stuff. But um, it's real. I'm, you know, Lake Powell uh, is is like way down below where it used to be. And so I, I just I think that uh, if people don't pay attention, that that could get a whole lot worse. Totally. Totally. Well, Francis, as we wrap it up here, I'm going to ask you the question that I ask everyone who comes onto my show, which is what no, if I... No, I cannot give you $20. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's for after. We're supposed to, we're oh. recording now, Francis. He, he, does, he didn't mean that. Um, <laughs> what advice would you give someone who is considering a career in this match? Um. It's extremely uh, rewarding uh, personally. You know, it can be it can be devastating emotionally sometimes, uh, which is why people should dispatchers should be included in the stress debriefing um, uh, that follow a critical incident. It can be it can be kind of devastating, but it can be very rewarding not only for the for the good that you do for people when, when they have a time of need, but also for the relationships you build with the people with whom you work. Uh, there's some of the best people around that you are, you know, working next to you or that you're talking to on the phone or the radio. The good people are good people to know, good people have in your corner. Um, that said, um, I would say uh, shop around because the salaries vary dramatically from place to place. Mm -hmm. And they don't always vary with the cost of living in the place in, in which uh, the PSAP is located. Mm -hmm. So um, if, if you plan to, you know, make your monthly expenses on a second job or overtime or uh, writing books, that's not going to work. So, <laughs> Um, I, I think it's a it's a great job for a lot of reasons. I think it's getting better financially. I think the certification programs help that. I think the training helps that. But um, it's that would be the one drawback I think. And then the only other thing I'd say is you know check the schedules, see what kind of schedules they work because they have in some places the schedule can drive you completely off your rocker. Mm -hmm. um, to use a technical term, and, and uh, but I, if I had been getting paid what I make as a registered nurse, mm -hmm. I probably would have still been doing it. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, I had young children, mm -hmm. and um, I was I I went to, to a nursing school at Bellevue through a through a fire and police department uh, sponsored program. And, and once I got out of nursing school, it was kind of like, well, you know, how how best to spend my time? You only have so many hours in your life. Mm -hmm. so unless I win the lottery, you know, what's going to be the best thing for me and my kids and my wife and all that mm -hmm. stuff? Um, you know, the, the older you get, the more important your economic questions are. It's a mm -hmm. um, and and then, then the other the other question is benefits. You know, mm -hmm. I know people who stayed. And in, in New York, stayed so they could get the pension. Mm. Because it's yeah. nice to have a pension at an earlier age than you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, and but they almost all worked second jobs just to kind of either uh, live in New York City 
or uh, live nearby and commute to New York City, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which were expensive propositions, both of them. So, but other than the money piece, I, I think it's a, a tough job to beat. It's not boring. Mm. exciting when you come into work it's a different thing every day and people need you, mm. Mm. And that, you know, that can be a burden but boy it can be pretty good if you deliver for them so awesome i love that definitely shop around i'm a big fan of it's not just the department who's looking for you you're looking for them so definitely yes. shop around i love that um francis Again, thank you so much for joining me today and everyone listening. Again, Brooklyn Hellfire comes out on November 1st. But if you can't wait and you shouldn't wait, you can head over to Amazon. Just search Francis X. Holt and you can see all the rest of the books they have put out and grab one of those while you're waiting for November 1st to hit. So is there anywhere else anyone can connect with you? I know you're no, on no. LinkedIn. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much for the uh, for the promo for the books. I appreciate it. And on LinkedIn, um, yeah, I mean, anybody who's looking for me, I'm I'm readily available, and I uh, I uh, post routinely, and I also publish articles routinely. So awesome. Well, Francis, yes. again, thank you so much. I truly appreciate it, and I've really learned a lot today. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, be right back with you. Okay. All right, everybody. That was another amazing episode here on Let's Talk Dispatch. Francis, again, thank you so much for your service and writing these books and really promoting um, the reality that we're here. Dispatchers do exist and we do have a tremendous impact on the communities that we serve. Make sure if you're a reader to check out Brooklyn Hellfire, as well as the other books that Francis has put out. Again, it's on Amazon and we all know we have that app downloaded. So there's no reason not to go check it out. Of course, like, subscribe, tell a friend, check out the raspydispatcher.com, and we'll see you next time. Stay raspy, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Let's Talk Dispatch, a Raspy Dispatcher production. If you like the podcast, don't forget to hit that subscribe button, leave a five-star review, and of course, tell a friend. If you want to be a guest, head to the raspydispatcher.com and check out our additional resources. Until next time, stay raspy, everybody.